Mark 2, 18 to 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth to an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Joelle. Well, through the spring, what we've been doing is we're looking at these questions that Jesus asks. Uh, If you read through the Bible, read through the Gospels, Jesus is always asking people questions. In fact, one study that I referenced a couple weeks ago, they went through and counted it all up, and apparently that Jesus asks 307 questions uh, throughout the Gospels. He's like a a good therapist who's always... um, asking you questions and probing around and rummaging in your soul to get you to think about things in new ways and to discover new realities. But, the, but we have our questions for him as well. And our questions are important too. We always, we come to Jesus and we, we, have, we have things that we need from him and things that we are curious about, things that we want answers about. And in fact, that's how this, um, this passage begins. It, uh, it's a group of people that come up to Jesus and they ask him a question. Look at verse 18. It says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and they said to him, that's referring to Jesus, why do John's disciples... And the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast. They're looking at these followers of Jesus, and they're noticing, they're observing that y'all are doing things differently than than other religious groups that I'm aware of. Because the reality is there was this guy named John the Baptist, and he had a group of followers, and apparently they were fasting all the time. And you have the Pharisees, which was this, you know, elite religious group, and they had followers, and, and at least according to Luke 18, they fasted twice a week. And actually, in the passage right before this, Jesus and his disciples are feasting. So you have Jesus and his crew, and they're feasting and they're eating and they're drinking. It seems like all the time when everybody else seems to be fasting. And so it just kind of raises this question, what is different about y'all? What is unique about being a follower of Jesus that's, that's distinct from everything else? And really what they're asking, I guess the question behind their question could be phrased this way, what is a Christian? Which I think is a really um, poignant question, because I know for some of you, that's a question that is very much on the forefront of your mind. You're, you're asking yourself that, what, what does it mean to actually be a Christian? Maybe, I mean, here you are in church, maybe it's been forever since you've found yourself in a church, and you're exploring, and, and you're, you're asking that very question. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to actually be a Christian? Others of us in this room, we, we've been in churches forever, and it seems like we, we know the answer to that question, but if we're honest, that the answer to that question can be very easily co-opted by different voices, different agendas, and so I think it's a very important question for us to 
wrestle with and consider this morning. What is a Christian? And just think about how, how you would answer that in your own head. Some of you might say, well, I think what a Christian is, it's someone who believes, someone who believes in God, maybe believes in Jesus. Maybe you'd say, well, a Christian is someone who's religious, someone who kind of does religious stuff. Maybe you'd say, uh, no, I think a Christian is someone who's moral, like they're, 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 they're striving to live within a certain set of like religious rules. You might say, um, it seems like a Christian is someone who's conservative. Those seems to be, maybe in your mind, those are equated. Others of you might say, well, a Christian is someone who is judgmental or uh, narrow-minded. A Christian is someone who's toxic. How does Jesus answer that question? What is a Christian? You might be surprised to discover he doesn't answer that question with any of those answers. He, he answers that question in this context, in this passage, really in two different ways. And, and I want to show you how he answers this one at a time. His first answer to that question of what is a Christian, he, I, I'd say he, you can boil it down like this. A Christian is someone who enjoys the love of God. Let me show you where I get that from. If you look at um, uh, you know, the, the beginning, so they asked that question to Jesus, how come y- y'all aren't fasting and all these, people, all, these people are, all these other people are? Jesus answers their question with a question. You see in verse 19, he says to them, okay, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? He, he's thinking about weddings. He's talking about weddings. He wants them to get in wedding mode in their brain. Why? Well, think about it like this. Back in 2006, on a hot Memphis day, I got married to the woman of my dreams, the sweet, the beautiful, the wise Catherine Drinkard. And um, as a pastor over the years, I have gotten... gotten the privilege to officiate a lot of weddings, be at a lot of weddings, and I can just say definitively, ours was the best. It was, it's objectively true. It is an unbiased scientific fact. Ours was the best. We had this, I mean, it was, it was amazing. It was beautiful. All of our friends, all of our family were there. We had all of these students from our different ministries that were all there, and our, and our wedding reception was amazing. We had this massive spread of food. We had um, a mashed potato bar which what I remember as like a 25-year-old thinking, that's amazing. Like, that's the best thing ever. You just go down the line and you have mashed potatoes and cheese and chives, you know, whatever. And uh, bacon. And uh, we had this amazing Motown band that uh, was incredible. And they were not afraid to dabble in some, uh, into some outcast or some, uh, some vanilla ice throwing a little Nelly in there. <laughs> y'all, y'all remember Nelly? And um, it was awesome. It was fun. Now, just imagine you go back to 2006, and let's say in, at the height of the reception, when the dance floor is crowded, the band's rocking, everybody's crushing the mashed potatoes. Uh, if I look over and I see a table of all of my groomsmen in their uh, rented tuxes, and they're all sitting there with their arms folded, and they're not eating, they're not drinking, they're not dancing, their heads are bowed. And let's just say, you know, I go over to them, and I'm like, bros, like uh, my squad, what are y'all doing? I just got married. Like, hit the dance floor stat. What are y'all doing? And they said, here's the deal, Matt. We decided that today would be a good day 
for us to mourn our sinfulness and to fast and abstain from food as a way to cultivate our spiritual hunger for God. I would say, y'all are the worst. What's wrong with you? That's not what you do. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, this is a ridiculous scenario, but that's, that's the scenario that Jesus is painting here. It's ridiculous to think about, okay, the groom is here. The wedding has happened. This is when we celebrate. This is when we feast. This is not when we fast. This is when we celebrate. That's his whole point in asking this question. But if you notice, here's what's extremely significant. He puts himself in this scenario as the groom. He's the groom that he's talking about. And here's why that's such a big deal. If you think about, there there are all of these different images that the Bible uses to describe how God relates to us. Different images, different metaphors. Sometimes it'll say that God is a, a king and we are his subjects. We're citizens of his kingdom. Uh, other times it'll say that he's a, he's a shepherd and we're his sheep, or he's, a, he's our father and we're his children. From the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end, there is maybe, maybe the most dominant metaphor that is used is that he is a groom and we are his bride, which if you think about it, almost feels inappropriate. He, he takes the most intimate love, romantic relationship that there is and says, that's a pretty good picture for how I feel about you and for how I relate to you. Now, like I said, I've been to a lot of weddings. I've officiated a lot of weddings. And, and I've kind of, I've begun to notice this trend that when that moment happens, when Canon and D cranks up and all the people stand in the church or in the, in the venue and everybody turns and goes to, the, you know, looks towards the back because that's the moment when the door swings open and the bride is standing there on the arm of her um, father or somebody that she's close with. And everybody turns and, and they look back there because everyone wants to see how stunning and radiant the bride is. And it's obvious, but I've noticed from my vantage point, I can see there's a, there's a handful of people that have learned to start to turn and look towards the groom who's up front because they want to see his reaction. Because there is no smile like the smile of a groom that sees his bride for the first time. It, it is this mixture of wonder and overwhelm and love and ugly crying. And um, I, I was once a, a best man at a wedding, and my friend, when, when that moment happened, his knees buckled. Like he, like dude was about to fall out at his own wedding. Like, we've got to help this dude up. But it's this, it's this overwhelming moment, and the Bible is saying that, that, is a, that is a window into the affections that God has for you overwhelmed with delight, longing, passion for you. Now, if you hear that and you think, that feels like a stretch. That feels like that's um, preacher hyperbole. Look at this passage or this verse. I put it at the front of your bulletin. Isaiah 62.5, it says this, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Becoming a Christian 
is not about just getting religious. It's not about just taking on some new ethics and some new morals for your life. And it's not about believing some new ideas about God. Becoming a Christian isn't even just believing that God loves you. Becoming a Christian is about enjoying the love that God has for you, of putting yourself in that story as the bride and on the receiving end of that level of desire and delight and love. Now, you hear that, and there's probably two different reactions in this room. Some of you are having the reaction where you say, okay, but how how can I know that? It's one thing to just have some dude stand up and say that. How can I know that that is true, that if there's a God that he actually loves me? Others of you have the reaction where you say, that's not my struggle. I don't struggle with knowing that God loves me. I believe that. My struggle is that I don't know how to experience that. I certainly wouldn't describe the way that I relate to God in marital terms at least not in a healthy healthy marital terms. Both of those questions can be answered with the same response. And and you, you see this in verse 19. Look at how Jesus goes on. He says, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come, though, when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. He's saying, my disciples are going to feast while I am with them, while the bridegroom is with them. But there will come a day when they will mourn, when they will fast, and that's the day when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Now, that that phrase, taken away, in Greek means to be removed by force, to be violently taken away. So all the commentators agree that he's talking about the cross here. He's talking about his death here. Jesus is tipping his hand in this little bizarro metaphor that he's using. He's saying in this love story, it's going to involve a cross. And if you want to understand my love for you, you have to begin to understand what the cross is all about. What is that? Well, think about this. If... um, I'm guessing everybody in this room, to some degree, will sacrifice something for someone that you don't even know. Somebody comes up to you on the street and they ask for help, they ask for money, ask for food or whatever. You might give them something. You might even, as you're in the drive-through line at Starbucks, pay for the order behind you, pay it forward. We'll sacrifice something for people we don't even barely know. Now, as you think about people that you do know and people that you like, you'll sacrifice even more. You might treat them to a nice dinner. You might uh, get them a birthday present, get them a gift card, buy them some Legos, whatever. Uh, for the people that you really love, the people that are closest to you, your, your, your children, your parents, your spouse, your dearest friends, your roommates, pe- people that are, that, that, that are in your inner circle, my guess is you would sacrifice almost anything, if not anything. You, you would donate organs for them if they needed it. If uh, you would flush out your savings account, you would liquidate your assets to pay for their, um, their medical costs. Would anybody liquidate their assets for somebody that hates them? Think about someone who just rants against you online, thinks that you're the worst 
What would you do for them? The gospel is the reality and the news that God was willing to give up everything for the very people who hate him. Because every human being showed up either not believing that God exists or we believe that he exists, but we can't trust him as far as we can throw him. In some ways, everybody shows up into this world hating God. In fact, this is is in some ways historically proven because when God did show up in the person of Jesus, what did we do to him? We murdered him. We do not want God in our lives. And yet, so we're the people who hate him. And, and And here's what the Bible says. Here's Romans 5. It puts it this way. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is saying God was willing to liquidate all of his assets for people who hated him, not for the good, upright, rule-abiding, good citizens, the worst people who spit in his face and hate him and want him murdered. He's the people who willingly gives it all up for our sake. That's how you can know that he loves you. You look at the cross. If that's your question, how do I know? Then you've got to think back and reflect on and do business with this historical reality of Jesus dying in your place. And the same answer is for you if you're on this side saying, I believe it, but I don't know how to experience it. You keep looking at the cross until it starts to melt the ice away from your heart to begin to actually think, he loves me To that degree, this is not love that is just sentimental. This is not ooey-gooey, hallmark kind of love. This is costly. This is bloody. This is is gruesome, sacrificial love for me. When that gets in your bloodstream, that melts the ice. That's what a Christian is. It's someone who enjoys the love of God, or or to use this metaphor, who feasts in his loving presence. But there's more here. Jesus answers this also in a second way. A Christian is not somebody who just enjoys the love of God, but here's the second way he answers this. A Christian is also someone who is transformed by the love of God. And he does this by showing us these two um, images at the end of the story. If you look at verse uh, 21, he says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, a patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. So if you have an old pair of jeans that you love and it has a rip in it and you want to salvage the jeans, you you put a, a new patch on it, a patch that's made from some new cloth, and you sew it onto the jeans, as soon as you wash those jeans, that new cloth, that that patch is going to shrink, and because it's connected to the jeans, it's going to pull away, and it's going to make the the tear even worse. That's Jesus' point. Basically, the old and the new don't go together. And then it's the same idea with this wineskin business in verse 22. The way that they would make wine back then is they would pour partially fermented wine in these goat skins and then seal it up so that it would finish fermenting. And as gas is is released, the the skins were stretchy and and they would expand. 
if you did that process with old skins, which weren't stretchy, they were, they were stiff, they were brittle, it had no room to expand, and so it would break, and the wine would spill out, and the wineskins would break, and his point is the same. The old and the new don't go together. Old stuff can't contain new stuff. And so here's his point with that. Jesus doesn't just fit into our pre-existing ways of living or believing or behaving. When the love of Jesus comes in, everything gets transformed. Everything changes. If you think about it like this, think about your life as if it were a smartphone. You've got all these apps on it, and all these apps represent different little aspects of your life. And so you've got your work app. So every morning when you go to your job or every night when you go to your job or whenever, you click that app and you're, you're, you're in work app mode. Or um, you, have, you have a friendship app, and you click on that when you hang out with your friends, you grab coffee, you grab dinner with your people, you're, you're, on, you're in friendship app. Or you have the exercise app where some of us, you know, we click that app two or three times a year, and um, that's, how, that's, how we, that's how we roll. And for some of us, we have, uh, you know, Jesus app, Christianity app. We click on that when we go to church and, uh, you know, when we go to Bible study or, or whatever. It's a part of your life, but that's it. It's just a part of your life. And the Bible says that's not how you conceive of a life with Jesus. Colossians 3 says that our lives are hidden in Christ, meaning take everything about your life and it's immersed in and gathered up into Jesus. Which means when Jesus comes into your life, it's not like downloading an app onto your phone. It's like downloading a whole new operating system. So that now the way that you relate to every other aspect has been radically revolutionized. The way that you relate to your parents is different. The way that you relate to your neighborhood is different. The way that you relate to dating and your school and your job and how you relate to Memphis and crime and uh, safety, how you relate to your life goals, how you think about the future, how you think about everything now gets filtered under this operating system of his love for you. You know, there are um, there's some corners in the church, some traditions within Christianity that use this language of asking Jesus into your heart. Maybe you've heard this language before. Maybe it's outdated. I don't know. It's not. It's 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 trying to get at this idea of here's what it looks like when somebody takes a step of faith to trust Jesus for the first time. You ask Jesus into your heart, which is not biblical language. It's fine. I understand what it's trying to do. But if you think about the imagery of it, we're thinking about Jesus shrinking down and coming into our life when actually the the biblical imagery is that we get swept up into his kingdom. He doesn't get consumed and assumed into our agenda. We get consumed by his. You see the difference? So let me put some um, practical skin on this and then I'll stop talking. Here's what this looks like in practice. Uh, most of us in this room, not all of us, most of us in this room are Southern Memphians. And um, again, not everybody is, and so I'm just going to speak to the few of us that, or the however many of us that would identify as Southern Memphians. There is a, there's a code 
uh, within being a Southern Memphian that goes like this. A, a way that Southern Memphians think about the world is that there's a code and we say there are standards for what makes somebody a good person. And those standards involve things like, well, you work hard, you show up on time, you're polite, you say please and thank you. If somebody's older than you, you refer to them as ma'am or as sir. You look them in the eye when you talk to them. You write them a thank you note after they've given you a gift in a timely manner. And um, let's say that this southern Memphian decides to become a Christian. They decide to start following Jesus. Does that mean that their outlook on the world looks like this now? Okay. There's standards for what makes somebody a good person and a bad person. And the standards are uh, you show up on time, you work hard, you write your thank you notes, and you join a church, and you say your prayers, and you read the Bible. Is that what it is? And I think Jesus would say, no. He doesn't come along to just add some Jesus-y stuff on top of our operating system of being Southern Christians. He came to blow up the whole paradigm, to just obliterate the standards altogether and to liberate us from the rat race. Because you know what those standards do? When we start to think about the world, here are good people and here are bad people and you gotta do this. You know, all of that provides ammunition for you to look down your nose at people that don't live up to those standards. Those Southern codes fuel self-righteousness in us. And, by the way, they also give you tons of ammunition to just shame yourself into oblivion when you don't live up to those standards either. And it's part of also part of our Southern code is that when that happens, when you fail, when you really blow it, you can't let anybody find out about it. And so we hide it, we cover it up, we smile and pray, nobody sees it, and nobody discovers that we're actually a mess. But when the gospel comes in, it does, it's not just adding some Jesus stuff on top. It blows up the whole thing because what the gospel does is it tells you from the beginning, guess what? We're all failures. We've all failed our standards and God's standards. Every single one of us, everybody in this room has imposter syndrome we're afraid that somebody's really going to discover that we really don't know what we're doing. We all are insecure. We've all failed the standards. We're all a mess. And we are infinitely loved beyond anything that we could comprehend. When those two realities come together, when we actually embrace the fact that we are sinners and loved at the same time, that gives you a gracious disposition towards other people when they don't live up to the standards either, and it gives you a gracious disposition to yourself, you can actually start to be kind and, and compassionate towards you when you discover and see the things about you that you hate about you. Grace actually changes the way that you even think about yourself. It, it, it strips away all of the impossible expectations that we put on everybody around us and ourselves. It liberates us. Don't you see, Jesus doesn't just come in to just sprinkle some Jesus dust on top of our, our thing. He came to blow up our thing. 
and give us something way better, way more liberty, way more joy, way more peace, way more patience, way more kindness. But the way that that happens is through enjoying the love of God and allowing yourself to be transformed by it. That's why we're going to sing here in just a second this song, the first verse of which says this. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me. Friends, sorry, foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes and ears to see and to behold the love of Jesus, lover of our souls. And I pray that that would indeed make us whole, that it would transform us. It would not just bring us to some, the next level of self-actualization that we might have in our heads, but it might actually transform us from from the deepest parts of who we are all the way up. May we find ourselves hidden in Jesus and in his love for us. Would you do this for us? Would you melt the ice around our hearts? Would you give us eyes to see his love in a way that we may have missed before? Do this work in us because we can't do it ourselves. We ask all this in his name.